Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would melt uh, our frozen hearts this morning, uh, Lord, that um, with probably all the things that we're coming into this room with, feeling and thinking and things that are coming up, uh, maybe even that you would help us hear the beauty of your coming, your incarnation in a new way this morning, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't just be here to recite some story that we've heard, um, but Lord, that you would really restore the joy of our salvation, that this is the magnificent movement of you coming to rescue your people. Um, Lord, we are powerless to make ourselves feel the significance of that this morning, um, so we ask by your Spirit that you would do that. Um, we love you. In your name, amen. Have a seat. Well, this morning, uh, we are going to be looking in Luke chapter 1. We have been there. I need to turn my little lights on here, my little dueling lights. Uh, we've been studying over the past few weeks the scriptural historical account of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, which is where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible... Turn to Luke chapter 1, and uh, over the past few weeks as I knew I was preparing to do this, kind of have somehow made a habit of just reading the passage over and over and over, and um, praying today about what the Lord wants for us as a community uh, to hear come out of my mouth somehow this morning. And uh, there was a singular verse uh, that the Lord continued to kind of bring me back to brought my attention to time and time again, and it's what we're going to spend some time considering the implications of this one verse for us today in light of where we find ourselves before the holidays. Uh, and it's chapter 1, verse 37. And we find this statement, it's coming at the end of an annunciation. Gabriel has come to announce to Mary, this is about what's about to happen to you this is about what's about to happen to the world. Um, I'm coming to tell you what's about to go down. And um, the statement is this. Chapter 1, verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Now, what I'd love for us to camp out in for a few minutes this morning, in this statement this is, a, this is not just something Gabriel's suggesting. He is stating a fact. Nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God. So what does this statement, what questions does this bring to the surface for you and I in light of today? So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that statement? What does it mean for something to be impossible? I mean, even in light of that statement, isn't it kind of funny? Isn't it kind of like a, a double, I don't know, what is that? Double entendre? An oxymoron? <laughs> Nothing's impossible? Isn't that like saying everything's possible? So God is about to do the impossible in the world. He's about to do the impossible in the life of Mary. He's just come to Zechariah and told him, I'm about to do the impossible in your life, in Elizabeth's life. So let me ask you this question this morning for you 
who are here trying to warm yourselves and thinking about all of the travel you're about to maybe do or not do. Is God doing the impossible in your life right now? How would you even know if he was doing the impossible? I would wager this. Looking in myself, talking to people, most of us are familiar with the statement. If you've been around the church long enough, you are familiar with this statement. We have some kind of cognitive familiarity with it. Scripture says it, so okay, I guess, yeah, I believe that nothing is impossible with God. But practically, let's talk about these next handful of weeks. Let's talk about this next upcoming year. Practically, we have very little, small amount of functional, practical trust of this truth. That God is the God who comes and does the impossible. What seems, what feels impossible to you and to me, that feeling of impossibility doesn't even apply to him. He lives outside of the realm of what is and isn't possible. The holidays. For some of you, for many people, this is not nearly as joyous as we kind of see when you're at the mall. I had a boss at one point who used to take us. (laughs) You're going to think this is crazy. Take us to the mall during our staff meetings when I worked at the youth ministry. He's like, isn't this great? Once once a week, we would go to the mall and walk around because he loved how it made him feel. (laughs) Rob, you were a part of this. Uh, Just take it in, soak it in. It feels good, right? You know, Santa and the lights and selling things and buying things. It feels awesome. But if we get past all of that kind of surface junk, A lot of us, doing what we're about to do feels impossible. The pain that surfaces, the broken relationships that are revealed, the hopes that have gone unmet and are going to continue to go potentially unmet this year. Even if things are relatively well in your family, just seeing the aging of my parents and knowing that this will not last can be deeply painful. It can feel impossible. Maybe the holidays reminds you of someone who's died, who's not here. Of the separation that you feel between the people that are in the room that you're supposed to be family with, but you don't have that kind of relationship with. The limits, even, of good relationships. Where you're in a relationship that you deeply love, yet you still feel this groan that's going unmet. It's into this impossibility that this statement rings for us. For nothing is impossible with God. It's a catchphrase, guys, for Christian ministries everywhere. Nothing's impossible with God. But oftentimes the, the living reality, my true bottom line, is this. Ultimately, I make what happens happen. I'm the one who makes what occurs in my life occur. If the impossible is going to happen, I have to make it happen. And guess what? I know I can't. So I gave up on that a long time ago. Most of us sit in this room as people 
who have given up on the impossible. In fact, <laughs> even as I've thought about this this week, I've made it oftentimes the goal of my life just to do something that seems or feels impossible to you all so that you would potentially worship me. Isn't that the truth? We go around trying to do the impossible in the eyes of everyone else so that we can feel something about ourselves. This week, this last two weeks, me and my family have been sick. I've been on a steady dose of NyQuil. If this sermon doesn't make any sense, that's probably why. Uh, written under the influence of the Holy Spirit and NyQuil, which oftentimes feels similar. Uh, uh, but my family was sick, and my boy Hudson was really sick, and then Parker got sick, and now my wife has been sick. And they were kind of coming out of it, and on a Friday night, um, Hudson came down with like a literally 105 fever and was puking everywhere. And it was 1 in the morning, and Emily was coughing uncontrollably, and Hudson was vomiting all over both of us. And Parker was in his bed crying. And um, I felt like this is impossible. What felt impossible about Friday night, it wasn't that the Lord could heal Hudson of his fever or that Emily could be healed of her cough or that Parker could somehow miraculously fall back asleep. What felt impossible was for me to not be so angry and despise the fact that for two straight weeks I've been up at 1 a.m. in the morning with one of these boys. It felt impossible to not become enraged, to not want to put fists through walls of my home because I'm so tired. It felt impossible. It felt impossible to live in the functional trust of the truth that Romans 8.28 tells us and that we hear all the time out of this pulpit. For we know that in all things, in that moment at 1 a.m. in the morning with vomit coming on me, all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It felt impossible to trust that truth so deeply that I would even have peace, gentleness, humility, selflessness in the midst of feeling that I would be peaceful, that I would be gentle, that I would be selfless that I would be humble, that I would serve my wife, that I would serve my kids. You know what it feels like to feel angry at a kid for being sick for something he couldn't do? Doesn't that sound crazy? And I couldn't stop myself. It felt impossible. What I would describe and what I'm going to describe this morning and what I hope we get out of this time in Luke 1 is being able in the moment in the moments of our lives, in the moments that you're about to live, in the moment that you're living right now, to separate what I feel from who I am and live by faith in who I am rather than what I feel. Friday night I felt angry and then I became angry. I felt tired and discouraged and that tired and discouragement became who I was. I lived out of that place. You see this tension this creates. It creates it most for my generation, and I know everybody in this room isn't in my generation. But we are, 
I would say, for the most part, most of us believe and live as though we are what we feel. That is who I am. What I feel is who I am. So let's look at this passage and some of the surrounding story and see if we can make some sense of this. If you're thoroughly confused, I'm sorry. (laughs) Hopefully, I'll make some sense of this this morning. Maybe how this separation of what I feel and who I am is possible. Let me tell you this morning, I believe this. It's possible and it's necessary for us to experience the impossible that God is doing in our lives. So I'm saying something this morning. I'm saying he is doing the impossible. Earlier in the chapter of Luke, Gabriel visits both Zechariah and Mary to tell them both of the truth of what is about to happen to them. So go to Luke chapter 1, 1 verse 13. I'll kind of paraphrase this. For Zechariah, Gabriel says this, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many people of Israel will he bring back from the Lord to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. For Zechariah, his prayer had been heard. These were old people, y'all. These were really old people. These were people who were as old as Abraham and Sarah were in the Old Testament. His wife is going to bear him a son, and this is not just going to be any son. This is going to be John the Baptist, forerunner of Christ. Gabriel coming to Zechariah. This is what's true about you. For Mary, Luke 1.30 The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary. For Mary... She was going to be overcome, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, become pregnant, and bear a son who was to be named Jesus, who would be the promised Messiah, who would be the Savior of the world. Now, just real quick, Zechariah, this guy was not just any dude. He was a priest. And I could talk for a while about the implications of that, but I'll say it in a sentence, hopefully. This would be a man who would have been intimately familiar with the Old Testament intimately familiar with the prophecy passages of a coming Messiah. Surely, guys, surely this guy's response, I mean, he knew Abraham. He knew the stories. He'd seen God's faithfulness to Israel through the generations. Surely his response to Gabriel would have been excitement, right? Faith, right? I mean, he wanted a son, right? He'd been praying for a son, and now he was getting one. And not just getting a son, he was going to get one that was going to lead the way for the Savior of the worlds, breaking into his creation to save it and redeem it? Hear this. Gabriel is coming and saying to Zechariah, this is the truth 
of, about, of what's about to happen. This is who you are. You are going to be the father of John the Baptist. Why? You read earlier in 1.9, casting lots, which was a normal thing at the time. He was chosen to do this. Nothing but grace. An act of God making a decision. Zechariah, this is what's true about you. What's about to become true about your life. This is who he is. What does Zechariah feel? One sentence. He says he was gripped with fear. Mary, by all accounts a teenager, most of the stuff I studied said that people would say somewhere around 14. Some people believe as early as 12. Unwed. Yet by God's grace and choice, he set his favor on Mary to be, and her life to be blessed immeasurably by making her the mother of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. Mary, I am Gabriel. I am telling you this is the truth about what's about to happen to your life. This is who you are, soon to be the mother of Jesus Christ. Why? Nothing again to claim but grace. You are the one who is highly favored, and the Lord is with. The Lord made a decision. What does Mary feel? Greatly troubled, but with wonder. Who Mary is, what does Mary feel? Who Zachariah is, what does he feel? Who you are, what do you feel? To both Mary and Zechariah, these words come, and I hope by God's grace they come to you today. These words come from Gabriel. Do not be afraid. You see, the impossible, it was about to happen. What seemed, what felt impossible to them was about to occur. An old man and a barren woman were going to have a son. A virgin was going to become pregnant and give birth to the Messiah. The Lord had decided it. He had willed it. He had sent an angel to deliver the message that this is happening. The impossible is about to go down. Dun, 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 dun. Some of you got that. It's going down. It's going down. Sorry, my mind works in music, even though I can't sing it. Uh, nowhere in this explanation of it's going down does Gabriel say to either of these two, did he speak anything to them about the fact that they would do anything to make this impossible reality come about? He didn't say, and you're going to need to, and this is, and this is the part of it that you make happen. None of this depended upon them. Yet look at the response of both Mary and Zechariah. Verse 118 for Zechariah, verse 134 for Mary. Zechariah's response, how, how can I be sure of this? I am old and my wife is well along in years. Now, we won't even go into the fact of how can you be sure? I don't know, maybe because an angel's standing there saying things to you and that's not a normal daily experience. Uh, or Mary, 
Angel's there, Gabriel's there. How can this be? I'm a virgin. How can this occur? And here's where I'm going with this. If you're lost, hopefully this will connect it. Our feelings, because this is what they were feeling, was very afraid. Our feelings of fear always invite us to turn inward, to take stock, to take personal inventory. Do I have what it takes to make this impossible thing occur? Randy and I were talking about this the other day, and I think he said it well. We keep evaluating the promises of God based on our own abilities. We keep evaluating, which for us, if we're honest, is mostly an emotive thing. How do I feel about how that went? The promises of God, what is true, what is happening based on our own abilities, which let's just be honest, that is in modern day where we find all of our identity. What abilities, what gifts, what talents do I bring to the table because that that tells me who I am, and you, you tell me who I am by doing that for whatever I do better than the rest of you. My abilities are my identity. And my identity, this is why what we're about to talk about is so important, why the truth and the role of the truth is so important. My identity, oftentimes, I'm like a boat at sea, wishing and washing between my identity being rooted in my feelings or my identity being rooted in the truth. When we are at the place where we are perpetually asking the how questions, how is this going to happen? I don't see how this can happen. You can be pretty certain that your feelings of fear have become your functional trust, which means you, which means I have become my functional trust. I have become my hope which means my hope isn't in the Lord, functionally. Which, friends, that should be the scariest thing of all to us. That should root and, and unroot deep necessary fear that my hope is now somehow in myself. Fear and hope are two sides of the same coin. Whatever it is that you hope in, whatever it is that you're afraid of, they're the same thing. If you're afraid of what's going to happen over this next two weeks, that is ultimately where your hope is. If you're afraid of where you're going to get the money to do the things that the Lord's got for you, that's where your hope is. If you're afraid of, I don't know how this relationship is going to turn out, that's where your hope is. Gabriel speaks into this. Do not be afraid. I don't think this is just semantics, so if I'm stretching it here, stretch with me. He didn't say, do not feel afraid. He said, don't be afraid. So point one, thing that I want us to take away this morning, for us to begin to step into the impossible things that the Lord is doing in and around us, we must cease to be people who are afraid, who be afraid. Not feel afraid, but be afraid. Let me see if I can try to explain this. How is this possible? Fear must cease 
to be the place from which we function and live perpetually. The place from which we move and groove. The place from which we make our decisions. The place from which we live our lives. It's got to cease to be that. Let me talk for a second about what's the difference between being afraid and feeling afraid. Being afraid. This is really emphasizing this word be. Be is core. It's foundational. It's consistent, perpetual, active state. When I looked up the definition of being, it said the fact of existing. It's your substance. It's your nature. I am afraid. I live afraid. Fear is my constant, perpetual state. It's, it's my nature to be afraid. That's what being afraid is. Feeling afraid is partial. It's valid, and it's serious, yet it's subjective. I have to take that feeling, and it must be measured up against some objective, absolute truth in order to determine what I do with that feeling. You see the difference? The difference between feeling something and being something. Being is, it's taken over. I am literally, I cannot not act on that fear. I have to obey it. It's my master. Feeling afraid is, is I feel this. Okay, let me take this to something outside of what I feel and let that thing be the thing that determines what I do with that fear, whether I act on it or not. Some of you have been repelling before. This is, I think, a decent illustration for this. You ever looked at like a carabiner and like looked at the math equation on the side of a carabiner? Most of us wouldn't know it. Maybe a physicist in here wouldn't understand what it means. But basically they should say on the side of the carabiner, like this could lift 30 elephants or this thing holds 18 Chevy Silverados. And you know, I'm looking at this, all this gear, and the rope says you could lift up an oil barge with it. I mean, like, if they would put it in layman's terms, that's really what it would say. You know, this, this thing, I'm like, I'm like 150 pounds. I just totally lied to you. <laughs> Drew, I saw you do this. <laughs> You're like, that's not true. No, seriously, like 160. So, um, I'm somewhere... Let's be honest, this will fluctuate severely over the next two weeks. I'm somewhere under 200 pounds. Uh, so, like, look at the carabiner. Like, okay, I'm not 18 elephants, but we have all this hooked up, right? And you're in a harness that has all those same equations on it. And you're at the edge of a cliff and you're leaning off. And I have the ability, I, mean, I don't know whether you get this, my butt tingles when I get up on heights. Like, I I feel it in my butt. Like, oof, just makes me nervous. And, uh, but everything about the truth of this equipment and the person who set it up says that there is literally no possible, it's impossible for me to get hurt here. Yet I can feel terrified at the moment of leaning back into that harness. Being afraid is saying, all of that equations, all of the things on that stuff, it's not true. And even if it is true, I, I will not live in the truth of that strength. I will not live in the strength of that carabiner 
because my fear is stronger than that carabiner, and so I'm not doing it. I'm not repelling. I'm not going off the cliff. Feeling afraid is having the tingles, but leaning into the seat of the carabiner or of the harness, trusting the rope, trusting the carabiner, trusting that this stuff is actually true. You do it once. I'm not saying you don't tingle the next time, but eventually your fear, something happens to it. So point two, how is it possible to stop being afraid? This is really the thrust of it. We allow fear to drive us to the truth. And the truth does something with our fear. It converts it. It transforms it into hope. It places it back where it belongs, squarely on God and not on us. This is the beauty of this story, y'all. The inbreaking of Christ is saying, your hope does not have to be on you. We allow fear to drive us to the truth. Most of us spend most of our time trying to not be afraid rather than even trusting that maybe what we're afraid of is really a gift from the Lord. He would maybe be using that to bring us to the truth. So let's talk about the truth for a second. The first thing is this, and this is how I believe truth transforms our fear into something else. The first thing is this, perfect love drives out fear. 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So the first thing we do, and this is just so easy to get lost in the whole like baby manger, hay, all this stuff, is to, is to wrap our minds, ask God, give me the grace to understand the perfect love that was poured out in your son, Jesus Christ immersing ourselves in the understanding, letting the truth of the fact that it was all for love that he came for us. Perfect love drives out fear. The second thing is the truth drives it out. It destroys it. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What weapons is he talking about? Randy spoke of these weapons when he talked about Ephesians 6, the armor of God, the belt of truth. Truth becomes our weapon. Truth becomes our protection. It goes on in 2 Corinthians 10 to say, we demolish, listen to this language, y'all. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 9, 13, it says, men will praise God because of your obedience, your actions, who you are, what you be, your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. What do you confess about the gospel of Christ? What do you believe functionally is true? That is what demolishes arguments. That is what demolishes every pretension that sets itself up 
against the knowledge of God. That is what allows me to begin to become a person who doesn't just be what he feels, but becomes someone who lives above, outside of what I feel. John 8, 32 says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not to be those who are free from ever feeling afraid. I know I'm dancing in and out of this. Not free from feeling afraid, but free from being those who are afraid, who live perpetually in fear, whose fear dictates our actions. John 16, 33 says this, I've told you these things so that you, that, sorry, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You see it? In this world you will have trouble. You will feel troubled. There will be difficulties. Peace, and what he's saying here is something that's possible outside of that. But take heart I have overcome the world. The world. I said it like that. The world. The world. <laughs> Hear the Lord's words to us this morning. I have overcome. Take heart, guys. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Nothing is impossible with me. You will have trouble, you will feel sad. You will feel angry. You will feel lonely. You will feel depressed. Many of those things will be companions for you throughout your life. But there is hope. There is joy. There is peace. There is satisfaction to be had outside of those feelings and circumstances. Regardless of if those circumstances ever change. I'm talking about transcending coming up out of what I feel into the truth. Philippians 4 says it like this, rejoice in the Lord always, always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God the peace of God himself will transcend all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this? Practical application. Stop trying to stop feeling afraid. Stop putting your energy towards stopping feeling a certain way. Quit. Give up on it. You are powerless to stop yourself from feeling. You ever try to stay in a relationship too long because you're just trying to make yourself feel something that's not there? Mushroom cloud. You're powerless to do this. And God, hear me say this, God isn't even asking you to stop feeling anything. Just stop being afraid. Let your fear and letting your fear being the place out of which you live. So stop trying to stop feeling. And how do we do that? Let that fear, actually celebrate it. (laughs) 
sounds so backwards, like, what kind of Christmas sermon is this? <laughs> Let that fear, which is actually a gift from the Lord, because it shows you the truth of where your functional trust is. It's in yourself. Let that fear, the feeling of that fear, drive you to the truth. So let me do this for us for just a minute now. Let me tell you the truth, guys. That you would not be afraid this season, even though you may feel afraid. I'm going to tell you what Christ came to do. Christ came for the needy. He came for the humble. He came for the sick. He came for the lonely. And he came to show us mercy. Matthew 9, 12. Christ came to set you and I free. He came to redeem us. Galatians 5, 1. The whole song of Zechariah and Luke 1. Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to justify us. He came to reconcile us. He came to save us. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Christ came to make us into sons and daughters, into heirs of his kingdom. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Christ came because of his great love for us. Ephesians 2, 4. I could talk for days. I could make a list for days of the reason Christ came. But for our purposes today, and the last thing I'll say, Christ came that we would no longer live in fear. That we would no longer be afraid, even though we may feel it. Zechariah's song, it's part of Luke 1. Luke 1, 74 Zechariah says this, to rescue us. He came to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness. Terms that are synonymous with the truth. To enable us to serve him without fear in the truth before him all of our days. So what feels impossible right now? This is a very reflective time of the year. What's felt impossible to you over this year? What feels impossible about this next? What feels impossible for you about the next 10 days? Would you lean into the truth that perfect love drives that fear out? Would you even let that fear be something that the Lord draws you to himself to show you the truth that would transform that fear into something that it's not? that we would potentially, possibly, actually become people who are not afraid, even though we feel afraid. People who would live by grace and faith, that we would live in holiness and righteousness, that we would be people whose lives are marked by living in the truth. Do not be afraid, Midtown. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Jesus, 
it's so hard to separate for me, even as I say it now, um, as you've just said it. It's so hard to not be what I feel. Um, but I thank you that you don't leave us there. I thank you that you don't leave me in my feelings, but that you step into all the humanity, all the brokenness, all the confusion, all of my ability to take stock and inventory, all of my ability to take your truth and measure it against my own fallen self, that you step into that, Jesus, and you say, don't be afraid. Lord, I pray for us that we would be a community of people, that we would be individuals, that we would be moms and dads, friends, sons, daughters who are not afraid, whose hope, Father, is fixed firmly on you and not on ourselves. We are Im impossible to make this happen on our own, but this is possible with you, Lord. Please do what is impossible for us. Thank you for already having done it and sending your son. It's in your name, amen.